night called Zechariah, and we've made it to chapter 12, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12, and these are amazing prophecies that we're going to be looking at tonight, so I want to invite you to get out your Bible, read along with us, if you're going to use a Bible under the seat in front of you, that's page 1100, these are truly amazing prophecies, and you've got to read them with your own eyeballs, okay? Zechariah, chapter 12. Father, I thank you for a beautiful time of worship. And oh Lord, how we thank you for your word. So comforting, so helpful in every season of life. And Lord, I thank you how your word informs us of the days in which we live. That you know the beginning from the end. You know how everything plays out. And we take great comfort in knowing that you're in charge. Open our eyes, Lord, to understand. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, before we get into the text, I'm going to put this chart up that I've put up several times on Wednesday night. This is how an Old Testament prophet like Zechariah sees prophecies. Remember the Old Testament prophets, they saw peaks, not valleys. So they saw all the prophecies concerning Christ at his first coming. And they also saw prophecies concerning Christ at his second coming. They didn't see the valley in between. And so sometimes the peaks are sort of mashed together as they give it in the Old Testament. But we, being Christians... Living in 2022, we have this view. We can see the peak, we can see the valley, and we can see the peak. So we know that Christ came the first time, and after his first coming, he ascended to heaven, and the church was born about the last 2,000 years, and we know that there's going to be a second coming. I say that because everything that you're going to see Tonight, in these chapters in Zechariah, all speak to that second peak. So we are looking into the future. Not only the future from Zechariah's standpoint, but our future. So we're looking at events, things that will take place at the second coming of Christ. So let's remind ourselves of the timeline as we approach The second coming of Christ. Right now we are in the church age. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. He went to heaven. The church was born on the day of Pentecost. As recorded in Acts chapter 2. That kicked off the church age. Now during the church age. This is very important to understand. God has set aside. The nation of Israel. Not the Jews, individual Jews, but the nation of Israel. God's plan right now is the church 
comprised of Gentile and Jew. The next event that can happen at any time is called the rapture of the church. I believe we're real close to the rapture of the church. One day Jesus will come and the church will be raptured and taken out. After the rapture of the church, we enter into the final seven years of human history as we know it. It's a period of time called the tribulation period. And it's during this time, folks, that God's judgment is going to be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. Things are going to be very tough. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowl judgments that you read about in Revelation will be poured out. As part of God's judgment during that time, God is going to allow a world dictator to come on the scene and take over. We know of this person as the Antichrist. He will take over. There will be a one-world government a one-world economy, and a one-world religion all linked to this coming dictator. And he will absolutely uh, destroy anybody that won't you know, position themselves with him. He will want total and complete control. That will be taking place during the tribulation. Another thing very important, during the tribulation period... God will turn his attention to the nation of Israel again. The church age is over. God now turns his attention to Israel. And the nation of Israel and the land of Israel and the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, will be central to everything that happens during that time. So, the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, will rise to power by entering into a peace treaty with Israel. He's going to bring peace to the Mideast. At that time, I believe the Jews will be allowed to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. Midway through the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to turn his back on the people of Israel. He's going to set up an abomination of desolation in the temple, an image of himself. And at that time, he's going to require the world to worship him. And if anybody doesn't, they'll be persecuted. The Jewish people will revolt. They will rebel against that. The Antichrist and his forces will be attempting to slaughter all of the Jewish people in this second half known as the Great Tribulation, also known in Scripture as the time of Jacob's trouble. Eventually, the stage will be set for the final war, Armageddon. The Antichrist will lead the nations of the world against Israel, against Jerusalem, At that time, Jesus Christ will come again in glory and soundly, completely defeat the Antichrist and all of those nations joined with him. Jesus will become king and then he's going to reign for a thousand years, literally 
on the throne of David in Jerusalem. So the scripture teaches that in the end, God is going to save the nation of Israel physically. Their land, their city, and all of that. And that's what this first prophecy speaks of. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Watch this. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Now, the prophecy is clear. Jerusalem, center. Everyone's eye is on Jerusalem. The nations of the earth are gathered against Jerusalem. The Antichrist brings his forces and they come against Jerusalem. The book of Revelation says, they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, which is the field basically leading right there through the heart of the nation of Israel into Jerusalem. So, They're going to be surrounded, completely outnumbered, completely outgunned. But what does it say? They are not going to be able to take Jerusalem. Verse 2, I'll make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. That's cup of drunkenness. That's a picture of judgment in the Old Testament. These people will try to get into Jerusalem, but they will not be able to. As much as they want to, they'll become more and more like staggering, helpless, miserable drunks. They won't be able to take the city. Verse 3 says, It shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people. So God himself is going to make the city of Jerusalem a heavy stone. It will not be moved. And it says there, whoever attempts to cast that stone out will be cut to pieces, herniated, completely destroyed. So, how exactly is God going to save Jerusalem and Israel from the nations of the earth gathered around. Well, look at verse 4. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Now, this is really cool. God himself is going to intervene. And he's going to strike those armies with three things. Confusion, blindness, 
and madness. So you can have the most sophisticated army gathered, but if they become confused, if their logistics become confused, then they can become worthless. God is going to do that. And by the way, God has done that several times in the history of Israel. You read stories in the Old Testament where like the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem and God in the middle of the night sent a spirit of panic into their surrounding armies so that they killed one another. I think of when the Egyptians followed Israel through the Red Sea. You remember that story? They were starting to catch up with the Israelites. What did God give the Egyptians? Chariot problems, right? Their wheels came off. God confused their logistics. God gave blindness. God is going to do that at this crucial time in history. God is also going to empower the nation of Israel with superhuman supernatural strength. What it says in verse 5. It says, And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength and the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. Jerusalem will be inhabited again in her own place. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. Now, this is a very interesting prophecy. It tells us that when this happens, there are going to be leaders among Israel that will be outside of Jerusalem. Governors on the outside, sympathetic to Israel. Probably hiding out in some secret area. And God is going to set those governors on fire. He's going to bring them to these armies that are surrounding Jerusalem And in the land of Israel. And like it says, these guys are going to be like little torches that you put in a woodpile. Like little torches that you would put in a field. They're going to set everything on fire. In my mind, I see Israeli warriors coming from all directions and fighter jets or whatever that might look. And they're going to set things ablaze. They're going to be supernaturally empowered. Look at verse 8. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who's feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. Now, that's the inhabitants, the people that are surrounded, the Jews in Jerusalem. God is going to empower them. That verse tells us, and I love this. The weakest person in their army will be like David. Now, let me tell you, King David was a warrior. In that day, the weakest, most timid soldier will be as courageous and successful as King David. So God is going to empower his nation. 
He's going to confuse the enemies that have surrounded. He's going to empower his people. By the way, the Israeli defense force today is pretty tough. Some of the toughest soldiers on planet Earth. When this happens, they're going to be supernaturally empowered warriors. And they will fight. And then, look at verse 9. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. God says, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. The word to seek to destroy does not imply that the mission might not be successful. It means the Lord will make that object the focus and first priority of all his actions at that time. And folks, that's when Jesus Christ shows up in the second coming. So God is going to protect and save Israel physically, their nation, their land, their city. By the way, it's, it's kind of interesting. Do you realize that this week, Israel is celebrating the 55th year anniversary of the Six-Day War? It was a war in which God protected the nation of Israel supernaturally. In fact, it sounds a lot like what we just read. In fact... Here's Israel right now. Down here we got Egypt, we got Saudi Arabia, we got Jordan, we got Syria, we got Lebanon. Do those countries like Israel? Check this out. Everything in yellow is Arab Muslim. There's Israel. Israel's about the size of New Jersey. It is surrounded by Arabs. And many of them house terrorists that are committed, listen to this, they're committed to picking up Israel and casting them like a stone into the sea. That's not going to go so good for them, is it? So 55 years ago, Israel's back in the land, 67, late May, early June. The Arab world completely united and joined forces to invade and destroy Israel. It absolutely happened. And Israel was completely outnumbered. 80,000 troops in Egypt... 60,000 troops in Jordan, 50,000 troops in Syria. 850 tanks supplied to them by Russia and 600 combat aircraft. Do you realize that actually happened? And they had united and they were going to invade Israel. Israel asked the nations of the world to help. Israel asked the United States of America to help. America stayed out. Israel was expecting huge losses. As I studied it this week, I read that they, they turned entire parks 
into areas that could become cemeteries. They were expecting so many casualties. Well, on June 5th, before all those Arab nations could strike, Israel launched a preemptive airstrike against Egyptian airfields. And as the Israeli Air Force took to the sky, the first miracle of the war occurred. Jordanian radar detected the planes and tried to warn Egypt. But the Egyptians had changed their coding frequencies the previous day and had not yet updated the Jordanians with the new codes. Little mindness, little blindness, little madness, little confusion. The message never went through, giving Israel the element of surprise. The Egyptians had no time to react. The Israel Air Force destroyed six Egyptian airfields and hundreds of Egyptian planes in a single day. Israel destroyed the Egyptian Air Forces, and at the same time, they went up there and destroyed all of the Syrian Air Forces. The Egyptian Air Force never even had a chance to leave the ground. Day two, ground. Instead of waiting to be invaded, Israel pushed south immediately, preemptive strike. During the night, there was confusion. And they somehow thought that a much bigger army was coming than was actually coming. Israeli ground troops advancing into the Sinai found numerous Egyptian positions abandoned. Tanks and heavy armor left in perfect condition. They acquired so much abandoned Egyptian armor that after the war, they had enough to outfit five new brigades. Day two or three, same thing happens up north. Now, this story up here is amazing. At one point, there was 25 Israeli soldiers defending the Golan Heights against tanks. They had a couple tanks themselves. Again, confusion at night. The Syrians thought, oh man, this enemy's stronger than it is. They show up and they find more tanks completely abandoned. God literally fought for Israel. So as Israel starts to win, all of the countries begin to say, hey, we need a ceasefire. King Hussein of Jordan writes up a ceasefire. And right when they're about to implement the ceasefire, King Hussein broke his own covenant, allowing Israel to continue. And eventually they got all of the West Bank, they got all of Golan Heights, They got the Gaza Strip, and they even got Jerusalem. Jerusalem in 1967 officially came under the control of Israel. In six days, the premier and the chief rabbis of Israel pray at the Western Wall for the first time with Jerusalem being their capital. The military correspondent for the secular Haaretz newspaper summed up the Six-Day War 
with the admission, even a non-religious person must admit this war was fought with help from heaven. Go read some of the eyewitness accounts. According to some eyewitness accounts, some IDF soldiers said they saw angelic being warriors defending their nation. Just an absolutely incredible thing that happened 55 years ago, this week. God confused the enemy, and God raised up powerful warriors from within Israel. So something like that is going to happen at the Battle of Armageddon. Only on a much bigger scale. They're going to be more outnumbered. They're going to be more outgunned. But God is going to use confusion. The supernatural enablement of his people. And in that case. Jesus Christ himself. Is going to show up as well. So Israel. Is going to be saved. Physically. But here's the best part. Israel is also going to be saved spiritually. And I'm talking the state, the nation of Israel. Look at what some consider to be one of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Bible. Look at verse 10. God says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. God speaking to Israel, listen, then they, Israel, will look on me whom they, what? Pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi and their wives. The family of Shemai and their wives. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. That is an incredible passage. God promises, and this will be fulfilled, in that last time, God is going to pour out his spirit upon the nation of Israel. A spirit of supplication and a spirit of grace. A spirit of awakening. Grace to forgive sin. And at that time, God will pour out a spirit of repentance upon Israel. Well, they'll be crying out to God. And at that time, Israel as a nation will recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. The Jesus that they rejected. 2,000 years ago. The nation of Israel will recognize. And that little phrase in verse 10, 
they will look on me whom they pierced. There is no way to explain that statement apart from the incarnation, death, and resurrection of one who is both God and man. God is saying to his people, one day you will look upon me. God is invisible. You can't see him. God will become man. And God will become a man who can become pierceable. Speaks of the incarnation. It speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I will be pierced. Jesus was pierced at the cross. Crown of thorns. Hands. Feet. Side. Speaks of the resurrection. You're going to look upon me, the one that was pierced to death. All of that. And the nation of Israel's eyes are going to be opened to all of that. They're going to recognize Jesus for who he is. They are going to recognize that they pierced Jesus. They bear responsibility for the crucifixion of their Savior. Not sole responsibility, but responsibility Nonetheless, they are going to receive Jesus and they are going to mourn like they've never mourned before. They're going to mourn like someone mourns when they lose their only son. Like someone loses their firstborn. And it's going to be a corporate mourning. I just read it to you. Everyone, every family. The wives, everyone, the children, Israel will mourn. And so look what God is going to do when they get into that state. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So as they awaken... As they look to Jesus, and as they look upon Jesus, the one that they pierced, in faith, God is going to save them. God is going to forgive them of all their sins. They are going to be saved like you and I as Christians get saved. Ezekiel the prophet saw this day. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That will be fulfilled. The state of Israel, the nation of Israel in the last days. And when that happens, folks, They're going to clean house. It says, verse 2, It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. They shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. When Israel returns, everything gets cleaned up when they receive Jesus. The idols are taken out, the false prophets and the demons that inspired the false prophets. When this takes place, all of the public opinion in Israel against false prophets will change. Look what it says. Verse 3. 
It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies like a false prophet, that his father and mother who begot him will say, you shall not live because you've spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. Whoa. Verse 4, it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet, I'm a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. So all of the ones that were engaging in false prophecy before this return to the Lord, man, they'll say, I was never a false prophet. Hey, you were the prophet, and now I'm a farmer. They won't wear the robes of a prophet. They'll forego all of that. Verse 6 is interesting. One will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. So many of the false prophets would cut themselves. Because cutting themselves was associated with with idols that they would worship. Real sad thing. Cutting and piercing and all of that. So these previous false prophets that have cuts. People say, hey, I see that cut. Aren't you a false prophet? And they'll say, no, no, no. I, I got in a fight in the house with my friends. So in other words, all false prophecy, all idolatry, all demonic spirits... Clean out a cleaned house. God is going to transform the nation of Israel. Now question, when does this specifically happen? When does the nation of Israel turn to the Lord? A lot of people say that that will take place when Jesus touches down at his second coming. That's when they look upon Jesus whom they pierce. And certainly they will see Jesus at that point. But I I think Israel will return to the Lord in the days and events leading up to the second coming of Christ. When it says they will look upon me whom they pierce, it's a look upon that implies faith. So I believe that during the tribulation period, God will be waking up the nation of Israel. And at that midpoint, When the Antichrist turns on them and there's an all-out war, I believe Israel will begin looking for the truth. And we're told in the book of Revelation, God is going to raise up 144,000 spirit-filled Jewish evangelists. And he's going to put his seal on them so nobody will touch them. We also know that during the tribulation period, God will place two very powerful Jewish witnesses in Jerusalem. I believe that will be Moses and Elijah come back to earth. Can you imagine those guys in operation? So I believe God is working with Israel. And eventually, in the days leading up to the second coming of Christ, you have this complete national turn to Jesus Christ. They clean house. And when Armageddon happens, these born-again Jewish Soldiers are empowered. And when Jesus comes again and defeats the Antichrist, he comes to a nation that has received him. 
It'll be incredible. It'll be absolutely amazing. God will save Israel spiritually. Paul said in Romans chapter 11, hey, listen, God has not forgotten about Israel. God will save Israel. And he will. These last three verses, verses 7 through 9, encompass Israel's interaction with Messiah for 2,000 years. I mean, we're about to read three verses that speak of 2,000 years. Look what it says in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be what? Scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now this is definitely speaking of Jesus in his first coming. He was strucken. God is speaking of the Messiah as my shepherd, my companion. And you remember Jesus was rejected by Israel, handed over to the Romans. And that wasn't an accident, by the way. God used all that. God says, I will strike the shepherd. So all of that was God's doing. And all of that was God the Son's sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins. But when the Jews rejected, they were scattered. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then in verse 8, it telescopes all the way to that second peak. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. One-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. So this is describing 2,000 years, the rejection of Jesus, Israel scattered for 2,000 years. In the tribulation period, sad to say, two-thirds of Israel will be killed. Only one-third of Israel will make it through. God will refine them. By the way, you look in the book of Revelation, and those same type of numbers apply to the entire population of the world during the tribulation period. So Israel will go through very difficult times, but eventually they will be saved, both spiritually and physically. It's incredible prophecies. Now, I think it's incredible prophecies because my brother and sister in Christ, we are living in a day and age where we can see that scenario play out. Do you understand? Hundred years ago? No way. Hundred years ago. Less than a hundred years ago. Not till 1948. When Israel, after being scattered for 2,000 years, becomes a state. Back in the land of Israel, the nation of Israel. Speaking Hebrew. Keeping all of their customs that they've kept. No nation has ever done that. We live in a day when Israel's back in the land and surrounded by enemies. 
as all of the Old Testament prophets say. The Bible also teaches that this Antichrist is coming on the scene and the one world government and the one world economy and the one world religion. We are speeding towards that faster than you can think, man. We are headed towards a one world government. We are moving down. In fact, it's my opinion that really the last domino that needs to fall is America. If there can be a weakened America, and we go, the world goes head first right into that world government. We live in a day and time where all of the technology speaks of the things that can happen. The mark of the beast, it's out there. Not the mark of the beast, but the technology is there. The idea that um, you can see see things live at the same time. The idea that you can travel around the world very quickly. All of that. Gang, we live in a time where all of this can happen. At any moment. And if that's the case, then we better be ready. Especially because what comes first? The rapture. If we see all the signs in place that show what can happen during the tribulation period, then we know we're very close. And we know we're even closer to the rapture because the rapture takes place. You know when you see Christmas decorations. And, you know, the first time you see Christmas decorations in the store, you know that Thanksgiving's almost here. Right? So when you see all the signs, all the, all the signs that show Christmas is coming, Thanksgiving's even closer because they always put out the Christmas decorations even way before Thanksgiving. If you see all the signs that point to a scenario with Israel, like we've just studied, we're much closer to the rapture. And I just want to ask you, are you ready for that? Are you ready? Do you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ right now? And also, it's a wonderful thing to study prophecy and become aware of where we are in our surroundings. Because, gang, we're running out of time, and we need to be very salty as Christians. We can't be playing games as Christians anymore. Don't you want other people to come and know Jesus before all this happens? Jesus said, you know, there's, right now there's day and you can work. But he also said, the night's coming, and when the night comes, no one will work. Right now is the time to work. You say, how can I be ready for the rapture? How can I know that I'm right with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because of what Jesus did at the first coming. You know, it's interesting. It says in verse 1 of chapter 13, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The truth is that that fountain was opened 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. 
Israel's going to realize it as a nation in the future. But for the last 2,000 years, Gentiles and Jews have been receiving Christ. They've been getting saved. I've always loved that wonderful hymn. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You want to be ready? And you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. His blood was shed for you. It's by the blood of Christ that our sins are forgiven and washed away. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes and we'll have... Father, thank you for showing us these things in advance and giving us a gauge, helping us to identify the times in which we live. And I pray, first of all, for your church, for every member of your church, from the oldest to the youngest, from the oldest Christian here to the middle schooler, the high schooler, the earliest, the youngest. Lord, I pray that we would live for you in these days. You have placed us here in a time like this. And I pray, Lord, that we would not play games with you, but we would follow you. In our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment. And then, Father, I also want to pray for anyone who is not sure if they belong to you. Maybe you've not been plunged in that fountain. You know Jesus died on the cross for you. And if you'd been the only one in all of history who would have received him, he still would have done it for you, for you individually. He loves you. He paid the price. And he rose again that third day. And right now, if you have not yet received him, I want you to do that right now. Make sure you're a part of him. God will not force himself into your life. He wants you to invite him. He wants you to be aware of your profound need for him. So come to him tonight. If you've not yet received Christ, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. If you're listening at home, pray this prayer with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I invite you to be my Savior. Thank you for that fountain that was opened that will cleanse me from all my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I humbly bow before you. Be my Lord, be my Savior. Help me to follow you in these important days in which we live. Fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.